We are in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so if you want to take time to turn to Ecclesiastes 11 is where we're going to find ourselves this morning. Ecclesiastes 11. The word of God is true, powerful, and good. Through its proclamation, God works to open our eyes to his perfect will and truth. May God bless the preaching of his holy word today. Before we get into this week's text, and we'll be in chapter 11, we're going to be considering verses 1 through 6. And before we get into this week's text, I, I, I know it was just last week, but I, I want to consider again um, last week's sermon. Namely, if I were to summarize it, wisdom is better even though we live in a world corrupted because of our sin. Wisdom is better. Because of humanity's sin, first in the garden, subsequently reenacted by every single human that has lived since, minus one, of course, including you and me, we live in a world of uncertainties. The preacher explained back in chapter 9, verse 11, he says, the race doesn't always go to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. He further illustrated this point, this last one, the battle going to the strong. He illustrates it through a story of the poor wise man delivering the insignificant city from the great and mighty king. In life under the sun, the preacher says, wisdom and folly are at odds with each other. Similar to how truth and a lie are at odds with each other. Consider 1 John chapter 2, verse 21. John writes, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. They are in opposition. The truth and the lie are in opposition. But this is just like righteousness and wickedness, as well as light and darkness are at odds. Consider Proverbs 4, 18 and 19. The writer writes, But the path of righteousness is like light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Or John chapter 3, Jesus' words. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light. For their deeds were evil. Light and dark are at odds. They're incompatible. But this is also like the spirit and the flesh, which are at odds. Galatians 5.17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit, they're against the flesh, for they are opposed to one another, keeping you from doing the things that you want to do. So we see a dichotomy, light and dark, righteousness and wickedness, truth and lie, wisdom and folly. They're at odds with each other. But just to be clear on what I'm not saying, I'm not saying that wisdom and folly, truth and the lie, righteousness and wickedness, light and dark, spirit and the flesh, I'm not saying they're equal and opposite forces. In other words, I'm not saying good and evil, or more specifically, God and Satan, are on equal terms. They're not equal sparring partners, so to speak. I'm not suggesting some sort of, if you know Eastern mysticism, uh, some sort of yin-yang philosophy. Listen, listen carefully. The Bible never suggests Satan is ever an equal and opposite to God. The Bible is crystal clear. God has no rival. God stands apart. He is separate, alone, unapproachable in glory and majesty. Consider... So you don't take my word for it. Deuteronomy 4, 39. Moses writes, Know therefore today and lay it on your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Or Psalm 97, 9. The psalmist writes, 
For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. Or Job. In Job 1, we have the scene of the heavenly host coming before Yahweh, who is sitting on his throne, and Satan is among them. He's not equal. He comes before Yahweh and asks permission to afflict Job. And then again in Revelation 20, the dragon, Satan, is seized and bound and destroyed by Yahweh in torment day and night forever and ever. In the heavens above, the highest heavens, let me be clear, God has no rival. Amen? However, that's not our setting in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes was not written from the perspective of highest heavens. It's written from the vantage point of life under the sun. That is the world as you and I experience it. As we've talked about in previous sermons, humanity first experienced life under the sun in union with God and his wisdom, as recorded in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. God's wisdom permeated all of his creation so that God's wisdom was our experience under the sun. That was how it was meant to be. It was our reality. His wisdom was our wisdom. There was no divide, no division, no confusion. But in Genesis 3, a new wisdom was presented to humanity, a wisdom based on a lie, a wisdom otherwise known as folly, or really an anti-wisdom. That once this wisdom, this folly was ingested, it turned God's world on its head. It is the fallen human heart that has made life under the sun seem like an equal playing field between God and Satan. But that is only because we exchange the truth for the lie. Psalm 115 16 says the heavens are the Lord's heavens and he despite what's happened on earth still is sovereign and unrivaled on his throne the psalmist goes on but the earth he has given to the children of men and we frankly have made quite the mess of it and in this world under the sun is what the preacher sees this is what he's considering this is what he's observing again and again throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Because of our sin, we inhabit a world full of uncertainty so that in life under the sun, the race does not always go to the swift. The battle does not always go to the strong. There are no guarantees that the wise will not go hungry. Intelligence doesn't ensure success and favor doesn't always accompany the knowledgeable. But as Solomon writes, in chapter 9, verse 11, time and chance happens to them all. In other words, life is full of uncertainties. And this, again, is the context for our passage today, Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 6. So, out of honor for God's word, if you are able, please stand as we read Ecclesiastes 11, verses 1 through 6. The preacher writes, Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven, or even eight, for you do not know what disaster will happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning sow your seed, and in the evening do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both will be good. May God continue to bless the preaching and hearing of his word. You may be seated. According to the website, John Hopkins Medicine, which has to be a reputable website because it's a .org, not a .com, uh, 
About 19 million Americans have one or more phobias. Maybe you're one of those. To date, there are more than 400 recognized distinct phobias. And researchers have noted that the list of phobias continually grow. Um, I was going to list some, but I have, I, I struggle with dyslexia, so seeing new words never comes out right, and I've been known to say some not okay things. So I'm going to spare you that, but I'm going to talk about what one of the most recent phobias that was added. There's actually now a diagnosable phobia that people have, uh, the fear of being away from your phone. Whoa. All right. Welcome to the 21st century. One of many symptoms of phobias can be paralysis, usually in the form of what's known as psychological paralysis or the inability to move forward in one's life, to deal with the reality before you and to move beyond it. In rare cases, phobias can be so severe that they can actually produce physical paralysis, which most often happens in the face. I didn't know that. I don't know if living in a world of uncertainties is its own distinct phobias. I didn't look up all 400. I was tempted, but I didn't. But facing uncertainties in our life can certainly cause paralysis. In our passage today, the, the preacher calls us not to give in to the paralysis resulting from fear of living in a world full of uncertainties. Rather, he calls us to take wise action so that we can prosper in spite of the many things we just don't know. In our passage this morning, the preacher points out four things we don't know, uncertainties that can paralyze us if we're not wise. So, my proposition. My proposition asks, how can we prosper in the midst of uncertainties? How can we prosper in the midst of uncertainties? And we're going to jump right in to my first point. Solomon, uh, from the text, the driving this first point is invest in your future. Invest in your future. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of Ecclesiastes 11. He says, cast your bread on the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion of seven or even eight for, and here it is, you do not know what disaster may happen on earth. You don't know what disaster may happen on earth. Solomon gives us the first thing we don't know. We just don't know what disaster is going to happen on earth. Disasters are frequent in the Bible. Um, I remember, I'm going to embarrass my son real quick, but I remember growing up, uh, Ethan's favorite part of the Bible was the ten plagues. Right? What boy doesn't life like disaster and destruction on an epic, divine scale? He loved it. Uh, I understand that. Disasters are impressive, but they're also terrifying. And they have far-reaching effects. From floods to famines to infections and invasions, the original audience was all too familiar with the devastating effects and looming possibilities of natural and man-made disasters. In a primarily agricultural society, disasters had not only immediate but long-term consequences and could take years to recover from if they were recoverable at all. The uncertainty of, is not so much a question of if a disaster would come, but rather when and what kind of disaster do we prepare for? Um, it makes me think my family and I went rafting this last weekend uh, on the Yellowstone. And uh, that's a favorite pastime of ours. And last year our season was cut short because there was a disaster, right? You guys remember the Yellowstone flooded and flooded like it's never flooded before. And rafting yesterday, or not yesterday, rafting on Friday, uh, you can still see remnants of that disaster. Houses were torn down, bridges collapsed, and the rubble of that still is, can be found along the banks of the Yellowstone, right? You don't know when a disaster will hit, 
and we don't know what kind of disaster could hit. So, how does Solomon the wise advise his readers to prepare for unknowable disasters? Well, he encourages them to cast their bread upon the waters, which of course makes sense. Who hasn't cast their bread upon the waters? But what, what could Solomon mean by this strange saying, cast your bread upon the waters? Um, <clears throat> it was fascinating reading commentaries, trying to wrestle with this thought of casting. There were some that said, you know, in antiquity, they would make their bread flat so you could cast it on the water and it would float, which still doesn't solve the problem of what happens when you go retrieve it later, when it comes back to you. It's still soggy, wet bread. Archaeology has not discovered any long-lost secrets the ancient world used to make their bread more water-resistant than our bread today. So what in the world does he mean by this bizarre imperative? And note, it's in the imperative. He's saying, do this, cast your bread on the waters. Well, there's two prevailing options. First, most modern commentators suggest this is an idiomatic axiom advocating a diversification of resources through international converse. In other words, cast your bread upon the waters is taken to mean send out your goods on trade ships and when they return they'll bring back valuable goods. Again, in a largely agrarian society where family, a family or even a, a small kingdom lives off the produce of the cultivated land, one local disaster can mean life or death. The idea here then would be to take some of the harvested grain, the grain that you would use to make bread, and send it out on trade ships to distant lands to trade for exotic grains, maybe grains that you can't grow locally. Livestock or commodities, perhaps unavailable in one's immediate area, that would add value or provide alternative means of income which could help preserve a people in the face of crisis or disaster. Verse 2 would support this idea because Solomon writes, give a portion to seven or even eight. In light of the wisdom of diversifying one's resources, not just counting on one grain harvest, but diversifying your resources, commentators see the preachers advocating for either diversifying their investments or at least dividing one's wealth into various portions as a precaution against misfortune. Similar to what Jacob did before meeting, having an uncertain meeting with his brother Esau. Jacob divided his household, his livestock, his wealth among his family members and sent them one at a time to meet Esau. And if you remember, Esau and Jacob did not have the most amicable relationship. And it was to ensure that Jacob didn't lose everything at the start. He diversified. So to support this, this idea of international commerce, you can see this actually in uh, some translations of the Bible. For example, the NIV actually takes this position and translates verse 1 and 2 this way. It says, ship your grain across the sea. After many days, you may receive a return. Invest in seven ventures, yes, even eight. You do not know what disaster may come upon the land. The second and much older interpretation held by Jerome, Luther, many of the reformers, and most of the Puritans understands the command to cast one's bread upon the waters as a metaphor of giving alms to the poor. Just as casting your bread on the water seems a useless and ineffective act, at least fiscally, so too giving to the poor appears not to benefit the giver and is therefore equally, or at least uh, in a financial sense, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's, it's senseless, foolish. The poor can't repay you any more than weak old soggy bread can nourish you. So what's the wisdom in throwing your money away to the poor? The wisdom comes through remembering that we are living in an upside-down world. The logic of life under the sun is actually foolishness 
in God's economy. The preacher has constantly reminded us that there is a God who is in the heavens above and he is sovereign. Our care for image bearers, his image bearers, does not go unnoticed. Giving alms to the poor does not go unnoticed by the sovereign and generous, kind God. On a practical level, if disaster strikes, no matter what the form is, friends, and get this, friends are better help than things. Things don't care about you. Things can't love you back. The second interpretation understands verse 2 to be commending not diversification of one's material investments or business ventures, but promoting excessive generosity. Give a portion of seven, says verse 2, or even eight. Seven is, as many of you know, is the number of perfection or completeness. Eight would suggest giving even more. In other words, excessive generosity. Give and give more. So which interpretation is right? Well, I want to suggest maybe both. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. Both interpretations tell us to invest. We live in a fallen world and disaster is going to strike you at some point in your life even likely several times in your life. Life is going to throw you a curveball that you don't see coming. Be prepared. Certainly, it's wise to prepare for the future and diversify your resources. Um, This can be a good way to ensure as much as you can when disaster strikes that you don't have all of your proverbial eggs in one basket that gets wiped out. Even secular advice encourages to... encourages us to diversify our investments to protect our future. But as Christians, as Christians, we must have to ask ourselves, which future do we want to invest more in? Jesus warns in Matthew 6, 19 through 20, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust can destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where three thieves cannot break in and steal. It is not wrong to invest your money wisely. But, believers, we are foolish if we invest only in things. We are like the rich fool of Luke 12 who labors to build a safe and comfortable place and then loses it in a night. Look, we know there is a living God. You know he has revealed his heart. He has revealed his heart plainly through his word, the living word, his written word. God has given us his heart. God created you for himself. Diversify your earthly goods and invest your earthly possessions in things God has a heart for. Read your Bibles and see where God invests his heart. What does God talk about? Right? Um, It's a well-known fact that what you talk about is what you think about, and what you think about most is what you love the most. Right? What does God talk about? How does God share his heart with us? How can we know where his heart is. And this, this is the catch, is we can use our earthly possessions to pursue the heart of God because Jesus says in Matthew, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Why not use your treasure to build up, to diversify, to build a heart after God's own heart? Isn't that what you want anyway? Don't you want a heart after God's own heart? Because if you have his heart, what else do you need? He's the God of everything. Everything. Invest your treasure into the thing, things God cares about so you can have a heart after God's own heart. Um, a few years ago, or many years ago, I guess, <clears throat> Chris and I had the opportunity of 
teaching, co-teaching a class together on finances. And I learned a lot through that class. It was a it was a transformative class for not only me, but for Chris and I, and even how we, we think of our money. And one of the things that we learned from that class was uh, as we were studying scripture and digging into uh, his word and thinking through this idea of money, we have to deal with money in this life, right? We have to deal with, the, with possessions, with material possession. And this very thought struck me. Where your treasure hit is, there your heart will be after also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Well, if that's true, and, and if I want to be a man after God's own heart, then I want to use my treasure and invest it in the things that God cares about, not just the things that I care about. So we began reading scripture, and we found out God really has a lot to say about taking care of orphans and widows. God has a lot to say about taking care of the poor, providing for the poor, caring for the poor. God cares about the disenfranchised, the alien and the stranger. God cares about his word going out. And in this class, it was a practical class at a, at a Bible school, and in this class, we taught students how to budget. Turns out uh, budgeting is not an inherent skill, right? So we were teaching students how to budget and also the wisdom investing. But it, it occurred to me, right? Modern, modern um, uh, wisdom, financial wisdom says, diversify your funds. Don't have everything in, in tech. Don't have everything in the medical. Don't have everything in, you know, whatever it is, real estate. But diversify. And as I began to think of that, I began thinking, man, we can diversify our giving, right? We, we can start strategizing and diversify our eternal investment. And as we do that, we can be strategic so that what we invest in, we can invest in the things God has a heart for. And so on a practical level for Chris and I, um, that, meant like, that meant we began an adoption process, Right? Because God cares about orphans and widows. Now, Krista wanted to adopt since she was a little girl. I did not. Uh, that seems really intimidating to me. So I'm like, I need to have a heart for this because I want to do this as well. I want to be on the same page. Uh, and this is a good thing. God loves orphans and widows. So we began praying and I began reading my Bible saying, well, I want to learn more about adoption through God's word. And lo and behold, a heart that once was not I, not, I wasn't against adoption. I just was like, that's for other people. God began to form in my heart an awareness and a love and an appreciation for adoption. And we began that process. And it was an expensive process. And we invested in that process. And through that process, the Lord ended up closing the door a number of times and then moving us so that we, our home study was totally invalidated. But that was a lesson for me. I can shape my heart after God's heart. I don't just ask God to bless my heart, to bless my ventures, but I get to join on His. And that will shape and form me. Right? Invest. Don't stand in fear of what could happen. Rather... Lay hold of what God has already given you. He has given us everything in Christ. Lay hold of what God has given you and pursue his heart with all that you have. Invest in his kingdom. Verses 3 through 5. Verses 3 through 5 point out two more things that we don't know. Look at verse 5. It says, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. My second point is this. Act in faith on the things you don't know. Act in faith on the things you don't know. There are some things that are beyond our knowledge. Uh, through modern science, we've learned much about the development of a baby in, in its mother's womb. But the conception of life, the ordering of cells, the timing of division, the diversification of cells, why one cell can be a brain cell and another can be a toe cell, we don't understand how that works. 
it's still largely a mystery, mainly because we can't control or reproduce it. Life is in the hands of God. The second thing we don't know, according to Ecclesiastes, in this in these set of verses, is the work of God. God who makes everything. Colossians tells us that not only did God make everything, but in Christ all things are held together by him and through Christ. We have theories, lots of theories, on how everything came to be. But these are at best our best guesses. God is the only one who knows how everything was created. No matter how much we discover about our universe, there will always be limits to our understanding. Although we can't know everything, there are some things we can know. You can look at the clouds and know rain is imminent. You may not know when, you may not know where, you may not know how much rain is going to fall, but you can read the weather and tell something is coming. Uh, a few weeks ago, you guys know the, the storms that have been coming. We, were, we decided to go on a hike. We have some trails by our house. And we could see the rain off in the distance and thought, wow, it's raining a lot. And we kept going. And uh, we were not wise. Uh, I honestly thought it was gonna, wasn't going to come and get us. And I was horribly wrong. We got caught in a, a downpour I have not been caught in in a few decades. We were so wet and we had two miles to walk back to the house and no way of escaping it. We got drenched. I did not. I saw the rain clouds. I knew it meant rain. I could even see the rain coming down, but I did not heed the lesson before me. Well, what about, what about Solomon's uh, parable, if you will, of the felled tree? He says, <clears throat> um, where a tree falls, whether it's to the north or the south, where it falls, that's where it lays. Thank you, Captain Obvious. <clears throat> a tree, so in the context of where we're at, think of a tree felled by a storm. You may not be able to predict where it's going to fall, and you can't, um, you can't do anything about it to prevent it necessarily from falling where you don't want it to fall. But where it falls is where it's going to fall. You can't change that, but you can do something about what happens after it falls. In both cases, looming rain clouds and a fallen tree, Solomon's point here is that you can act on what you know. You know where the tree has fallen once it's fallen. You can do something about that. You can see the rain and the rain coming. You can have knowledge of what's about to come, and you can do something about it. A brewing storm, you can seek cover. A fallen tree laying where you least want it to land, it doesn't move through griping and complaining. You must take action. The two proverbs of verse 3 is then contrasted with verse 4. He says, he who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. The image here is, is of a farmer waiting for the exactly right conditions before he's willing to act. Too much wind, wind sowing, and your seeds uh, will blow away. Too much rain at harvest, so I'm told, will spoil your harvest. Although it is good to pay attention to those things we can perceive, like the weather, and glean understanding from, we must balance this with being overly cautious. The wise man of verse 3 sees the storm coming and prepares. The overly cautious man of verse 4 is frozen in an activity. Because every slight breeze to him could turn into the next windstorm, and all would be lost. And every cloud has the potential of a torrential or downpour, and his crops could be lost. Potentially, it could rain. Potentially, it could blow. Life is full of potentials. Tomorrow, says this farmer, tomorrow may be better. I'll wait for tomorrow. And he's paralyzed in fear because tomorrow, the perfect tomorrow, never comes. Solomon's wisdom here is to pay attention to what you can know. Don't be ignorant and foolish, but in the end, we must act in faith that there is a God who knows not only the weather, 
but a God who knows how life is woven together in a mother's womb, and a God who cares for his people. So in an uncertain world under the sun, we trust ourselves to the goodness of God and in faith act on what we do know. The wisdom and knowledge he has given us. We can act in faith on what we do know, what he has shown us. What has God shown you in your life right now? This doesn't work just for farming. Where are your friends? Where are your neighbors? I think a lot of times we can wait for the right time to share the gospel. And yet that right time, that perfect time never comes. Rather, engage in others' lives with what you do know about their lives and engage them with the gospel. Maybe you're not, you, you don't feel proficient with in explaining the gospel, but engage with what you do know. God's sovereign, you don't have to be. You can act, and he will act. And you can have confidence. Just do it in faith. So again, in an uncertain world under the sun, we entrust ourselves to the goodness of God and in faith act on what we do know, the wisdom and knowledge that he has given us. Again, Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 30 and verse 33, he writes, or he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will, <clears throat> what you will put on. For is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet our heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. They grow and neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But God, but if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Hmm. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Act in faith, not presumption, but in faith. Act on what you do know. Finally, Solomon gives us the last thing we don't know in verse 6. He says, in the morning, sow your seed. Good sound advice. And in the evening, withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, what you do in the morning or what the work you do in the evening. This or that, or whether both will be good. You don't know which will prosper. My last point is this. Labor diligently. Labor diligently. Proverbs 6.19 says, The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his step. The message throughout Ecclesiastes is our toil is vanity, but if we're willing to receive everything as a gift from the Lord, then and only then can we rest in joy through our toil. From Solomon's perspective, looking forward to the fulfillment of God's redemptive purposes, ultimately at the cross, he could only work from hope. Solomon could only work from hope. But for us, we can work from certainty. A certainty Solomon never had. God's work has been accomplished. What Solomon know, knew only in part through Christ, we know in full. Solomon could work for the hope of God's redemption of Israel and through Israel to the nations. But we must remember who Solomon was. And we must remember where he was in the unfolding plan of God's redemption. I have a illustration um, that I made. Oh, that was whispering. Ooh. Scandalous. 
Uh, I use this in a few of my different classes. It's just a picture how I illustrate redemptive history, the unfolding storyline of Scripture. I just find anytime you're reading your Bible, asking yourself, where am I in redemptive history? Where am I? Sometimes we, we can get ahead of ourselves and jump to the cross before we, we completely understand where we're at. So, so right now, I want to remind us, where are we? Who is Solomon? Where do we find ourselves in the grand unfolding plan of God's glorious redemption? After the fall, so we're going to backtrack a little bit before we get to Solomon. After the fall, God promised that a seed, a son born of the woman, would overthrow the lie of the serpent in the garden by crushing the liar's head. Through redemptive history, the storyline is carried forward through covenants, right? The storyline continues to move. If, if you're familiar with plotting narrative, the rising action is the development of the covenants. So it's worthy to, to take a moment to consider some of these covenants, not in detail, but to survey them. Through the Noahic covenant, we learn that God is going to fulfill his promise by bringing peace through judgment, through the Abrahamic covenant, we learn that the seed of the woman is going to be a miracle son of promise from God. Not of, from the, the fruit of man, but a miracle son from the promise of, of God. Through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Through the promised son, God will make for himself a people and prepare a place where they will dwell in peace with his presence forever. Through the Mosaic Covenant, we learn that he, God, is going to make a way for sinners through this promised son to be reconciled to God through sacrifice so that God can dwell in peace with his people. Then we get to the Davidic Covenant. In the Davidic Covenant, we learn that this promised miracle seed of the woman is going to be a prophetic priestly king from the house of David who's going to bring God's kingdom who's going to be a man after God's own heart just like David was so let's pause for a moment and look at the Davidic covenant because that's where we're at right we're, we're, we're in current events to the book of Ecclesiastes turn to 2nd Samuel chapter 7 2nd Samuel chapter 7 while you're doing that I'm going to give you a little bit of context and then we'll progress through Samuel Second Sam, or, uh, yeah, Second Samuel chapter 7. David has just brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem with great rejoicing and celebration. David wants to build a house for the Lord, and until now, up to this point, the Ark has been kept in the tabernacle, which is more or less a mobile temple. Now God has firmly established his people in Israel and placed David, placed David, a man after God's own heart, on the throne. David wants to build a permanent house for the ark, which symbolized the presence of God's pres or symbolized the presence of God among his people. But the Lord turns the tables on, the, on David through the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel, and I'm going to be jumping around just a little bit, uh, starting with verse 5 and 6, and then we'll go down to verse 10. Verse 5: Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? Have I, not, have I not, or have not I lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day? But I've been moving about in a, twi a, a, twint, a tent for my dwelling. Verse ten, and I will appoint for my uh, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From this time uh, I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you your, in your translation, it probably says offspring. In Hebrew, that's seed. Whoa. 
seed. Same word used in Genesis 3.15. I will raise up Uh, I will raise up your seed after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom, says the Lord. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Now, if you're following, if you're reading the Bible for the first time and you're, you're progressing through redemptive history and, and you're, you, 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 you kind of picked up on Genesis 3.15, right? Because the day they ate of it, they should have died. And the day they ate of it, they didn't die. So either God's a liar or something else is afoot here. And instead of death, he gives them a promise of hope. I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman is going to crush the liar. But it's going to be done through a fatal blow. So all along, you must be asking, as we walk through Scripture, you're asking again and again, is this the seed? Is this the one? Is this the seed of the woman that's going to bring about God's redemption and deliverance and restore all things? Is this the seed? And each covenant progresses us further along, clarifies again and again, who is the seed and what's he going to do? And then you'll notice up there the Davidic covenant, the last covenant. David, a man after God's own heart, God's people in God's place that he has promised. The Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, dwelling in a, in a, in a promised house that Solomon is going to build. And then God is going to provide a son a seed from David, a, key, a priestly king. He's going to provide a seed from the line of David on whom love, God's love is going to dwell forever and whose throne is going to be an eternal throne. This is the stage Solomon steps into. Can you feel the pressure, the weight, the expectation? And then along comes Solomon. Son of David, the wisest and most prosperous king in Israel's history. How, if you were, if you were uh, first, or if you were a, a modern, or I'm sorry, an ancient reader of the text, if you, were, if you were living in this time, how could you not think God is surely fulfilling his promises? Solomon's name, his name means peace. We have the son. We have the seed of the woman. He is king over God's people. He built the temple. This must be God's promised seed. But you and I know the rest of the story. We know about Solomon's fall narrative. How late in his reign he turned his heart to worship the gods of his many wives. Where his treasure was, there his heart was also. Now, perhaps at the end of his life, we have Solomon looking with regret, regret at a wasted life. It is no wonder he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. The promises of God were right before him, and yet they slipped through his finger like smoke. Solomon, at this point in his life, could only look forward with hope to what we know with certainty. We have the true and better son of promise, the true and better priestly king who is the true and better prophet, the very word of God, incarnate, living. We have the true and better sacrifice, which has provided a true and better inheritance and a true and better kingdom. God does not dwell in our midst. But we have the very Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. So where Solomon might say work diligently because of hope of prosperity, we, we can work differently. We can work diligently at whatever God gives us because we do know with certainty because of the finished work of Christ, our work in Christ will prosper. We most of all are those who do not labor in vain if we labor in Christ. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you that you have become wisdom to us and you have not remained far off even though that would have been completely understandable, acceptable, um, I'm sure even preferable from your vantage point. But God, you drew near. You entered our folly. You entered the uncertainties of this world and you were not daunted. You were not surprised you were not intimidated. You were not taken aback. But Lord, you, mo you moved with intention and with purpose and with diligence and with a face set like flint to the cross. And you have redeemed a people such as us. And now, Lord, we are in Christ if we are in you. So, Lord, help us to live lives that are wise, not lives that look at this world through the lens of only being under the sun in a fallen world, but help us to live right side up in an upside down world in Christ who has purchased us and bought us and given us new life and invited us to participate in his work which he will bring to completion. So, Lord, help us. Help us. Grow us, Lord. We are a people with little faith, so we pray, grow our faith that we might work diligently, that we might work steadfastly, that we might persevere. Not for that our work might be acceptable, but because Christ's work has already been acceptable and we get to participate in that as we walk by your spirit who you have given to us. So Lord, send us out. We pray that we might bear much fruit as we abide in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.